Praise God. Someone asked me, are you post-trib, mid-trib, or pre-trib? I said, I'm a pan-millennialist. They said, what's that? I said, it's all going to pan out in the end. I'm going to keep my heart right. <laughs> this is exciting times to be alive. Can you say amen? And you just feel it in the air. You feel it in the environment, the atmosphere. This morning, you can feel the spirit of revival in this tent. You know, tents are my environment. I live and die by this atmosphere. I love this atmosphere as faith that you feel. You know, God could do anything in an environment like this. How many believe God can heal anything from a hangnail to AIDS? Amen. We're going to believe God this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me? To the book of Judges, the second chapter of the book of Judges of uh, this morning. I have uh, recently been pondering again the thought of the subject of revival. And I thought of an old country song. Who's going to fill their shoes? One of the highlights of being in Guam in recent months is we've married 13 couples. Baptized 39 in water last Sunday morning. And the large majority of those that are being saved and being married are under the age of 30. What I see happening this morning, not only in the world with the Supreme Court and the justices and all that's involved there and the changing of the old guard, something is happening in the church. Can you say amen? It's very common now. Uh, on a Friday night, and our vision extreme to have nearly 100 teenagers. And they're out street preaching and witnessing on Friday night. And I want to tell you, it keeps you young. You know, to be around converts, how many know it keeps you young? I know that I look old, I've got snow on the roof, but I still have some fire down in the boiler room. Someone said, are you going to retire? I said, when I dropped dead, I just retired Bear me in a tin can, sing the hallelujah chorus, and thank God I graduated. Don't bring me flowers then. Bring them to me now while I can smell them. Who's going to fill their shoes? The issue in our society, as well as in the church, is that we're seeing a generational transition. It's almost like the changing of the guard. Reading recently, uh, this is a staggering statistic. 30,000 are dying every day from the World War II generation in this country. Known as the greatest generation of Americans. Recent, recently reading from Rod Parsley's book called Silent No More, he said, I have the opportunity to be with the president at the signing of a bill to ban partial birth abortion. And there were two dozen people in the room with the president during that signing. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me about the representation of my generation in that room. Because everyone there was about 20 years my senior. I noticed that there was a gap in a national voice of my generation speaking to moral issues. I believe this morning that the greatest day of revival is just ahead of us. I believe the greatest day for our fellowship is just ahead of us. I was reading again the old book, 
by Ron Ock, who wrote about the Pentecostal crisis. And he said these words already. We can see the first symptoms of the illness creeping through the body of the Pentecostal church. We still claim to believe in the supernatural manifestation of God's power, but we rarely see it in our services anymore. I believe God sets each church on a path or a vision. Once they lose sight of that path, they perish. They may not cease to be, but they just no longer exist with God's purpose in mind. He said, it has been said that there was a generation that saw and experienced the move of God, the first generation. Then there was a generation that saw the move of God, but didn't experience the move of God. That's the second generation. Then there was a generation that neither saw nor experienced the move of God, the third generation. Or another way of saying the same thing is the first generation knew the Lord of the work. The second generation knew the work of the Lord, and the third generation knew neither the Lord of the work or the work of the Lord. I believe that Jesus is coming back. I don't believe He's coming back for a weak, insipid, anemic church. I believe He's coming back for a church that's going to be revolutionary. I believe that church is going to be aggressive. Can you say amen? I believe that the greatest days for our church, I'm so encouraged this morning many times on a Sunday morning to see the first four rows filled with teenagers. And I say, God, you're doing it again. What has been will be again. Here in the book of Judges this morning in the second chapter, verse number 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Verse number 7 says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. They buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath. Verse, verse number 10, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which we had done, he had done uh, for Israel. Let's pray. Father, we're asking for your blessing, your anointing this morning that destroys every yoke. God, we ask, God, that you would convict of sin, of righteousness, coming judgment. Hide your servant behind the cross. We have no confidence in the flesh. God, we're asking you to have right of way. We give you right of way in this service right now in the powerful name of Jesus and all of God's people said, who's going to fill their shoes? Psalms 85 and verse 6 reads, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? It came to me, I believe, as a revelation that for the last several years that most of the people that I have pastored were born between moves of God. Now, that's not a derogatory statement this morning. These are good people. These people are committed. These are outreaching machines. They are soul winning. They are tithers. They're liberal with their offering. They love God. They're worshiping people. But I want to tell you, many of them were born between moves of God. Could I submit to you this morning that we are living in the Judges 2.10 generation? I believe that that's about to change. Another generation arose, the Bible said, who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done. 
That brings me this morning to my first thought, and that's the thought of seasons of revival. In verse number 7 of our text, it says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. This generation represents uh, this morning the first generation. Those who have gone before us, who have paid the price, uh, the early Pentecostal pioneers. We have an age-old problem today. And our fellowship is filled this morning, amen, with those who are ignorant this morning of the spirit of revival. One of the things Pastor Mitchell mentioned to me while I was in Australia at the Australian conference, he said, if we're not very careful, our churches will begin to be filled with the unconverted. This is the danger that we live in. Can you save him this morning? If there was ever a need for a move of God, if there was ever a need for revival, it's today. How many believe that God can move by the Holy Ghost today? This is not a derogatory statement. The truth is, uh, we have lots of folks, good folks, uh, who love God. They're saved to the bone, uh, but they've never seen it. Or in other words, we're dealing with a cycle. Not psycho, a cycle. It's what I call a spiritual generation gap. Verse number 10 is one of the saddest commentaries that's ever been written in the Word of God that you'll ever read. Revival, someone said, is a rediscovery of an eternal truth that has been converted to new terms, interpretations, and methods for a new generation. And the key to transition from possibility to reality is for a new generation to be what they hunger to see. Let me emphasize that again. To be what they hunger to see. I'll never forget the first time I came to a Prescott Bible Conference. I saw Pastor Mitchell praying in the prayer room. He had his shoes off in the prayer room. I said, that's the key right there. That's the key. He must be standing on holy ground. And he had his shoes underneath the chair. And later on I found out the reason why he took his shoes off is he didn't want to bend them up because they were new. Let me tell you, unless there is another move of God in this new generation, a new manifestation of God's power, we're all in trouble. And it's important to understand that there are some things you cannot transmit. You cannot transmit this kind of faith from one generation to another. I was reading again from Ron Ock, the problem of the first generation. He said the first generation of Pentecostals were a people of hard work. Their places of worship left a lot to be desired by today's standards. There was no central heat, no air conditioning. They did not have PA systems, carpet, padded pews, or padded altars. But they had the anointing and the power of God in their life and in their services. They worked hard to bless their children with things that they did not have through prayer and hard work. They blessed their children with everything that they did not have. You see, the problem this morning with the first generation is that they assume that their descendants will automatically understand why they feel as strongly as they do about certain issues. Now today, we have certain standards in our fellowship. Can I say this morning that those standards, uh, uh, those standards were forged uh, in prayer meetings? Can you say amen? 
These standards that have been established were forged out of the conviction that came out of a relationship with God, but to the new generation that's coming into our churches, they see it as legalism. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about having a prayer life with God. And I can tell you, you're not going to last very long if you don't establish a devotional life. Anyone that has failed in this fellowship has failed, not because of the lack of opportunity or the lack of financial blessing. They fail because they lacked their devotional life. I'm glad this morning that I talked to God and God spoke back to me. I'm glad that I read the Bible. I don't have to go to church. I want to go to church. I live in church and visit home from time to time. Amen. If I'm not in revival, I'm a basket case. And today's generation, they get up from the altar and say, Now, Pastor, does this mean I have to come to church? Kneel back down and get saved. Get the goods this time. Because when you have the have-tos instead of the want-tos, you better grab yourself by the nap of the neck and run back to this altar and get the real thing. The next generation that followed Joshua still have the hierarchy in place. They still have the structure in place. In other words, the Bible said they had priests, they had judges, they had leaders, but they knew nothing about the power of God. They had been reduced down to ineptness and impotence, simply parroting with no power. Oh, what a generation we live in today when the world is filled with Pentecostal philosophers. God deliver us from Pentecostal philosophers. I'll get it out. Don't help me. We still believe in praying for people to be filled with the Holy Ghost publicly. And we don't mind getting ugly for Jesus and letting our mascara run. I talked to one of the sisters in London. She had her hair in weaves. I said, how long did it take you to weave that hair? She said, 25 hours. I said, tonight after the Holy Ghost begins to move in this service, God's going to knock it all out in 10 minutes. In Judges chapter 2, verse number 16, it says, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Verse 18 says, And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And deliver them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Notice verse number 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead, they reverted, behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. These people are enjoying the rich blessing and the blessing and the overflow that comes from headship. I can tell you this morning, I can't remember a time where my pastor did not man this pulpit that there wasn't an automatic dominion that was established. 
Listen to you. Listen to me this morning. You and I have nothing to complain about. We are spoiled to the bone. Amen. We have lived sheltered spiritual life because of men who have established dominion. But listen to me. The Bible says what began in power became an intellectual exercise. In other words, the judge here in verse number 18 this morning had personal dominion and everyone else was living off of his dominion. If we're going to have what our pastor has, we're going to have to pay the same price that he paid to have it. It's not going to come automatically. Just because you hang a shingle over your door that says the door or the potter's house or Victory Chapel, it's not automatically going to come. If you're going to have what we have, you've got to do what we do, and you're going to have to pay the price for it. Listen to me. I tell my men, I said, we're going to send you out to do two things. Number one, you're going to duplicate what we do, or we're not going to lay our hands on you before this congregation and send you out. You don't mess with these people. These people are precious in God's sight. These people are going to support you with their prayers and their finance. You need to reverence the holy thing that God is doing in this place. And when we send you out, you by God better follow the pattern. And secondly, you better be Pentecostal. Baptists can preach. I said Baptists can preach. But they don't have the full gospel. All the revelation they have is Jesus, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. But we have the full gospel. That's Jesus, Savior, Jesus, Healer, Jesus, Baptizer in the Holy Ghost, and Jesus, soon-coming King. He's coming back, ready or not. These folks were simply living off the dominion of the judge. But when the judge died, the Bible said they reverted back and behaved worse than their fathers. Now this brings me to Gideon's dilemma, because Gideon represents the new generation of revival. Generation that needs to rise up and say, what's up? Something is missing in this generation of youth. Are you with me? The lights are on, but nobody's on. They're one french fry short of a happy meal. Yes, they have enjoyed the wonderful overflow and blessing. Someone prayed them into the kingdom, but they no longer see the need to pray for their peers to come in. They have simply enjoyed the dominion of mom and dad. They have simply enjoyed the overflow of headship and dominion that came that was established. Someone paid the price. But I'm glad to tell you this morning that another generation is coming on the scene. And I believe it's happening in this tent this week. It's a Gideon generation that says, what's up, Lord, if I'm a mighty man of valor, where are the miracles of our father? We're going to have to quit making excuses for why we don't have it. Some of us ought to be arrested for false advertising. We are deficient in the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not ashamed to tell you that I am fully charismatic in the true sense. 
I am not a priest and I'm not strumming a guitar and singing modern choruses if you think that's what a charismatic is. I'm not talking about gold dust or feathers falling from heaven. I'm talking about an old-fashioned devil-chasing, sin-killing, Holy Ghost revival that will change the moral climate of our city. It's easier to say that miracles have passed away or at least restricted than to pay the price to resurrect them. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon in the book of Judges chapter 6 and calls him a mighty man of valor, for the Lord is with you. And he says, if God is for us, where are the miracles and why have all these bad things happened to us? In other words, leaders have fallen, churches have been split, marriages coming unhinged. Amen. You might as well be real. I'll be frank if you'll be earnest. <laughs> Something is wrong. And the angel did not say, of course, there are questions. That's because the day of miracles have passed away. I want to tell you that the devil's a liar and so is his boyfriend. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we need to quit making excuses for why we don't have it today. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? I have been contaminating my staff. I said, when we preach here, we're going to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. We're going to pray publicly for people to be filled with the Holy Ghost. We're not going to take them off to a side room to an afterglow service in the basement of the church. We don't even have a basement. We might as well pray for them here publicly. I'm not ashamed to tell you this morning that I am full gospel. Most churches today, the only time they're full is at lunchtime on Sunday from having country fried preacher. I know some of you don't like this message and you've heard all these things before, but it's the truth anyhow. And besides that, pastor said take liberty. He knew I was going to take it anyway. You see, if we're hungry, God will give us a similar visitation. He responded to Gideon's hunger by showing him a touch of the miraculous. God is daring you and I this morning to believe Him. In First Chronicles chapter 12, verse number 32, And the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse number 5, Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing, and a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. If there was ever a need for a move of God in America, we need it this morning. Amen. I know what politicians can do, and they can do very little. And I can tell you there's going to be a few Democrats, that's said a few, and probably lots of Republicans, and some independent in heaven. But the answer to America is not just a political change. We need a moral change on the inside. Jesus on the inside, working on the outside. Oh, what a change He has made. And we're changing this world one by one. The joy of our ministry is we're seeing drug addicts set free. Alcoholics delivered. Perverts set free. Men and women getting married. 
Hallelujah. How many glad for Jesus this morning? I just celebrated this past few months. I just celebrated 30 years of marriage. I want to tell you something. Amen. If, if, the, if the next 30 years are as rough as the first 30, I'm going to take them 15 years at a time. My wife would have never gone with me if she would have known the whole thing. But thank God for a faithful woman. I didn't have to teach her about faithfulness. I was faithful. What a generation we live in. When people get mad when you preach about gender. Listen to me. They get mad. They come stomping up to the platform. How dare you preach on this? How dare you? Don't you know we're married in the eyes of God? And I said, you're not even married in the eyes of this state. We need revival, folks. For the most part, the Pentecostal church, while they're in the church hooping and hollering, their teenage kids are committing fornication in the back of an 85 Buick in the parking lot. Listen to me. We must have revival among our kids. Our children must experience what we've experienced. Lester Summerall wrote a book, his final book, Pioneers of the Faith. He said, when I die, an era will be over because it seems I'm like a bridge overlapping all of the other moves of God of this century. So I believe with all of my heart that we're moving out of the Judges 2.10 time and we're moving into a new era. In Judges 2.10, times are just about over. There have been times of confusion and bewilderment. We've been tempted to ask what in the world is going on. But how many know when you haven't had a fresh experience with God, you grow lethargic and confused? Many people lose hope for revival. The church slumbers into survival mode, maintaining instead of invading. We need to be like Gideon this morning. Make the long trek back to restoration and revival. I am not satisfied. And any good-heart evangelist, any good-hearted pastor, any good-hearted disciple or wife this morning cannot be satisfied with what we've seen so far. Survival will kill your hope and perspective of revival. Ron Ock, in his book, Pentecostals in Crisis, said the result of the difference between the first and second generation is a movement which has changed in all but name from what it was at its inception. By the time the third generation rolls around, we have a movement who for the most part have no idea what the roots of our fellowship are. What was a must for the first generation and a convenience for the second generation becomes nonsense to the third generation. All this talk about doing things the old way makes no sense to the average third-generation believer. The old ways, it is said, are for the old days, and the new days require new ways. The average third-generation believer claims that in this area we are dealing with cultural issues when we're not. Prayer is never a cultural issue. It transcends all cultures, society, and ages. It should be basic to every generation everywhere. In addition, the third generation becomes a group of schemers, like Jacob, their equivalent in Genesis. They scheme to cover a lack of holiness under the guise of cultural differences, personal taste, individual backgrounds, and individual past. Like Jacob, 
They become deceivers and supplanters, and they're always scouting out new ways while ignoring the old way, the way of prayer. That's where we are in America in a nutshell. Revival is a restoration or revitalization of the church. I tell you this morning, as I move quickly along, the revival isn't for sinners. We need God. See, the Bible said that demons dwell in dry places. That's the reason why many Christians are harassed and attacked and oppressed. They don't need to be delivered from demon possession. They need to get filled up with some water. They're as dry as the Arizona desert and deader than King Tut. Revival, someone said, is to recover from loss or death, to reinvigorate, to recall from a state of apathy or lethargy. We have confused revival with a five-day evangelistic meeting. Revival presupposes outreach. In other words, the church is revived in order to reach out to the world. Charles Finney said, the fact is, Christians are more to blame for not being revived than sinners are for not being converted. No wonder the world ain't saved. They look at the church and we're all sitting there, look like we've lost our last friend. Amen. If, I, if we ever smiled, our face would crack. How many know it's all right to have some enthusiasm about what you believe? How many believe it's all right to be happy in church? Were you smiling in church? No, Pastor, I'm sorry, that was gas. We ought to have some victory this morning. How many have the victory? Shout amen. amen. While the nation has sunk into a moral abyss, the church is playing games. You look at the church world today, impotent, powerless, apathetic, the same sins that are in the world are in the church. But I want to tell you, usually this is when God really moves. It's darker than a thousand midnights, uh, and we have a case history from the Word of God of resurgences of the Spirit of God. It happened during Jehoiada's time in Second Chronicles chapter 23 and 24. It happened again in Hezekiah's day in Second Kings chapter 18 verses 1 through 7. In Josiah's time in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. It happened in Zerubbabel's day in Ezra chapter 3 and chapter 4. It happened in Daniel's day in chapter 9 and chapter 10. It happened in John the Baptist's day in the, the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. And it happened again in the church in the book of Acts chapter 2. And what we really need this morning is a resurgence. See, the people realized that God's presence was gone from their midst. And they responded to a new season of repentance. Bob DeWeese, he was Oral Roberts' associate evangelist, said these words. He said, the people who most wanted and longed for the move of God in 1947 were among those who rejected it when it came. I'm talking about the signs of the time. I believe this morning this is God's season of time. I believe we're seeing the ch changing of the guard. I was looking this morning at Ministries or Charisma Magazine. The front cover was a picture of Billy Graham and the statement that was made there. He said, this is my last crusade. Can anybody replace him? Just a few weeks ago, Evelyn Roberts passed away. 
the wife of the famed evangelist Oral Robertson. No matter what you think about him this morning, no matter what you think about him today, I want to tell you, he was the leading healing evangelist of the 1950s. We need a fresh touch in this generation. And I'm so encouraged because young people are coming to prayer meeting. Not just to be watched. I'm glad that our youth scene is not a babysitting club. I get sick and tired of babysitting. We're having kids come that want to go on outreach. They don't have to. They get saved, gloriously saved. This is God's season of time. The Bible said that Ezekiel was transported instantly, Star Trek style. In the middle of a valley of dead bodies. Anybody ever preached to those dead bodies on Sunday morning? Filled with dead bones in a cemetery. How many believe these people definitely need reviving? They don't need to be healed. They're dead. And the Bible said they were very, very dry. In the Hebrew, dry bones symbolize starvation, emaciation, and leanness. God speaks to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And he said these words, O sovereign Lord, you know. I mean, he would have been rebuked in some churches today for making a negative confession. He was just being real. You can read it for yourself. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. In verses 4 through 6, he prophesies to these dry bones. Then in verse 7 and 8, there came a great shaking and a rattling of bones. Verse number 9, the breath of God enters into these dead bodies. And verse number 10, they stood to their feet and became a mighty army. Remember this morning, when the Lord's purpose dies with a generation, He never abdicates His plan. He simply waits for a new generation who will believe Him. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. I believe we're about to see God restore us to a greater capacity. How many believe His healing power, His deliverance, uh, uh, His delivering presence, His mighty miracles are still relevant for today? I believe according to the book of Acts chapter 3 verses 19 through 21 that there's coming a fresh refreshing from the presence of God. It means revival. It means recovery from the heat, recovery of breath. And the same breath spoken about in Ezekiel chapter 37 is also prophesied in the book of Acts chapter 3. The initial primary key is to every revival is repentance. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold the Lord, the hand of the Lord is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is His ear heavy, that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. One writer said, The so-called Azusa Street Revival has been recorded in history as a power encounter with God 
that was the hallmark for the Pentecostal church. The movement's greatest distinction its first, in the first generation was its adherence, powerful encounters with God. God was there manifesting Himself without any kind of restrictions. That's what That was enough to draw people. The Holy Spirit wrought conviction and drove the lost to the altars where they found God. No one knew what was going to happen next. These powerful experiences which set the Pentecostal church apart and made them the most radical element in Christianity served as a reference point for the Pentecostal movement. And each new convert was reminded in a moment of great tribulation to look back to the day when he met Christ and was encouraged instantly as he was reminded of his purpose as a Christian for the rest of his life. His purpose was to know his God in his power and to fellowship with Him. And the movement also had the collective purpose to introduce the world to God as He is, real, conscious, and to a certain degree, quite tangible. And they ran into conflict with the notion that God should be worshipped, recognized on man's terms as a God who was somewhere, not was, who was somewhere up there, but who perhaps fortunately didn't intervene in the lives of men. Aren't you glad that he still intervenes in the lives of men today? Who's going to fill their shoes? Another generation has come on the scene. The Bible said this generation that came on the scene did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done. You see, first, generation Christians had a ravenous hunger to spiritually experience their God. That's how they first met Jesus, and they never wanted to lose sight of that. Ron Ock in his book wrote these words, Their children, the second generation, however, were at a disadvantage in the area of prayer because they grew up in the midst of revival. The second generation Christians who accepted Christ were saved, but that's about all. They didn't hunger after an experience with God, which can be seen only in prayer. How could they? You can't hunger after something you've never tasted. Therefore, they had neither the motivation to pray nor an understanding of how important prayer is. Charles Spurgeon said the three keys to revival is number one, prayer. Number two, prayer. And number three, prayer. We need a prayer revival. Can you say amen in our midst again? I wonder if we could bow our heads this morning in the presence of God. Our heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. Who's going to fill their shoes? Spirit of God is dealing with hearts all over this Perhaps you came in this morning out of the invitation of a friend, relative. Maybe you simply drove by and saw the tents and you came to check it out. Spirit of God has dealt with your heart this morning for the preaching of the gospel. Holy Spirit has dealt with you and you say, you know what, I want to get right with God. I don't understand everything that was preached this morning, but I do know one thing. My heart is not right with God. I'm unsaved. I'm backslidden. Would you lift your hand up where I can see it all over this tent, front to back, side to side. You're unsaved. You're backslidden. You're away from God this morning. How many all over this tent? I need God this morning. I need Jesus in my life. I see this hand back here. How many others? You're unsaved. You're backslidden. You're away from God this morning. I see this hand over here. How many others? 
Here's my hand. I see these hands here. God bless you, honest hearts. How many others? You're unsaved or backslidden. You're away from God while Christians are praying all over this tent. I see this hand. Anyone else? As our heads are bowed, eyes are closed, I'd like to ask every one of you that raised your hand, would you look up at me, please? You raised your hand. Did you mean it this morning? Back here in the back. Sir, did you mean it back there? I know that you did over here. Did you mean it? I want you to come out of your seat and come find a place to pray at this altar. Let's all stand to our feet. We're going to sing a chorus of worship this morning. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. These altars are open. God has spoken to a number of hearts. Pastor Richard Cox dealt with one-on-one -on -one evangelism. The trap of becoming the big eventer. Pastor Bowman preached on the faithfulness of God. No matter where life takes you, through tragedy, failure, the loss of a dream, this altar is open. God is speaking to hearts as we sing it out together. Create in me a clean heart.